3: I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: We now stopped at a fish stand, and Edward is negotiating to buy two boiled lobsters from a guy who has cooked lobsters sitting on a milk crate in front of a little beer stand.
5: We open in the late 1990s, when lawyer Edward Tuttenham is in Jamaica with another attorney, Sarah Cleveland.
3: All right, and you get kingfish and more. on Orshan the... All right, I'll come back. Yeah,
5: so how had Edward and Sarah met? Well, through work. It was because of this sugarcane case that Edward was working on. Sarah was just starting out in her career in public law, and she turned up to watch this interview that Edward was doing with his co-counsel, Jim Green. Maybe she could learn a thing or two.
3: I met her,
2: I guess, the first time at this deposition. I do recall her coming back to me with the odd question. She said, well, I had a wonderful time, and I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out myself, who should I date, Jim Green or Edward Tutnam?
5: That's her boss from the time, Greg Shell he'd heard some less-than-five-star reviews about Edward from his previous girlfriends. So he suggested Sarah date the other lawyer, Jim.
2: Oh, and... And and, and he's, he was not currently engaged, which Edward was engaged in buying a house with his fiance.
5: But despite his pending marital status, Sarah was still drawn to Edward.
2: Edward is just charming, if you mean
5: him. He is just charming. Very debonair, dashing. And the thing is... Edward and Sarah had a lot in common. They were both representing farm workers, sugarcane cutters, but in different cases. So like a budding stock of sugarcane, their relationship grew. Edward eventually broke it off with his fiance, And as the years rolled on, Sarah even went with Edward to Jamaica to interview people for Edward's case. We've got old dictaphone recordings from their journeys, which sound like the public law version of an Indiana Jones movie.
4: On a one-lane, very rocky dirt road in jungle, literally, that's basically dark. I don't know if you can hear the rattles of the Jeep, but it has found joints that it never knew that it had. They were every great Hollywood movie of two people united in a common cause. Journalist Marie Brenner like lovers coming together when their world was coming apart to fight this great cause. We're now passing somebody's farm and planted among the boulders are a couple of papaya trees and sugarcane, and what looks like elephant ears.
3: We went regularly to Jamaica to take testimony, to find clients, to investigate potential witnesses. And we had a trip planned, and as long as we were going to Jamaica, we decided to get married on that trip. We quickly invited 30 of our friends and (laughs) had a wedding
5: not only had they met because of sugarcane, bonded because of sugarcane, taken romantic sojourns because of sugarcane, it turned out you guys got married on a sugar plantation. Yeah, well,
3: a 18th century sugar plantation.
5: When we left off in the last episode, lawyers Edward Tuttenham and Dave Gorman had decided to sue the Florida sugar industry's biggest companies, alleging that they'd underpaid thousands of Jamaican cane cutters over decades. Their legal theory seemed irrefutable, and it looked like an unlosable case. But what started as a quick strike morphed into something altogether different. Something that expanded and compounded and rapidly hijacked the lives of almost everyone involved. I mean, it wasn't just Sarah and Edward's relationship. The case began to sort of take over these lawyers' lives. I mean, is that fair to say? Oh, completely. I'm Celeste Headley, and from iHeartMedia, Imagine Audio, and the teams at Weekday Fun and Novel, this is Big Sugar, Episode 3, The Case That Consumed Them. On the surface, what happened in 1992 wasn't particularly thrilling, even according to Edward, who was at the center of it all.
3: It's not terribly entertaining (laughs) to watch. It's not riveting stuff.
5: So here they are. Lawyers Edward Tudnam and Dave Gorman have just entered the Palm Beach County Courthouse, a brand spanking new building, its architecture rooted firmly and proudly in the 1990s, leaning heavily on a color scheme of salmon and teal. They're there for what's called a summary judgment. It's where a judge has to make a decision about their class action on behalf of the 20,000 sugarcane cutters. Should it go to trial or not? The lawyers
3: were there, the judge and her clerk. There might've been three or four people in the audience, spouses of lawyers or farmer
0: officials
5: might've been there.
0: And the lawyers would come in and sit down on opposite sides of the table and, and present their arguments
5: that's attorney Dave Gorman again. So it wasn't a remarkable scene. But what's unfolding is pivotal. If the judge agrees with Dave and Edward, they're about to get a massive payout. If not, well, they've got to go to trial, which would be a huge amount of work.
3: The case was assigned to this new young judge, Lucy Brown, uh, who was just brilliant.
5: So first, Dave sets out their argument, the argument he hopes the judge will agree with, In essence, the contract that was provided to the Department of Labor on behalf of the sugar companies guaranteed the sugar cane cutters $5.30 per ton of cane they cut. But they were actually paid a lot less than that. So all these cutters are entitled to back wages.
0: The original argument was pretty civil, and it was pretty straightforward. If I'm expected to cut eight tons in an eight-hour day, and I have to cut fast enough to keep my job, That's a ton an hour. That means a ton an hour has to be good enough. And I have to get paid 5.30 minimum for that hour, which means I got to get paid 5.30 if I do the satisfactory one ton per hour. I mean, that to me is pretty easy logic.
5: Look, that is a lot of math to do in your head. So don't worry if you haven't totally nailed the legal argument yet. Just know that Dave and Edward are saying the workers were entitled to be paid $5.30 per ton of sugarcane they cut, as per the contract. But the companies had been paying closer to $3.70 per ton.
3: There are some people who figure it out in 30 seconds. All you have to do is say, they got to earn $5.30 an hour. One ton an hour is good enough. What's the minimum they have to pay? And some people, like instantly, it just comes to them. Yeah. Other people, you can explain it for hours. (laughs) It just never quite (laughs) penetrates. Um, Judge Brown got it. She got it very quickly.
5: Then come the lawyers on the other side, the lawyers representing the cane companies. They say, no, this wasn't the agreement. And you know what? These other lawyers are just in it for the money.
0: I mean, I've dealt with lawyers who are obnoxious, but this was like a class warfare case.
5: So the arguments continue on.
3: We had an all-day hearing with the judge where we simply said, you know, there's nothing to have a trial about. This is the contract. This is what it says. This is what they paid. We win. And the judge we had, she looked at the contract and she said, you're absolutely right. You win. Just like
5: that.
0: And she uh, agreed with that argument. And she ruled in our favor.
5: What was your reaction uh, when you heard the the judgment?
0: Uh, I was thrilled. I was thrilled.
5: This wasn't even the best part. Then there was the money, the amount that was going to be paid to the cutters and the lawyers. Dave got a letter informing them of just how much they were owed.
3: The judge issued an order that she just put in the mail. And he was just opening up his mail one day and sure enough there it was.
0: And that calculated out to a total 51 plus million dollar uh, judgment.
5: 51 million dollars. They'd done it. They had outsmarted the other side. They were even up for a national award.
2: They had essentially slain the the giant. They had done this really remarkable, clever, clever
3: I remember going out that night to a local music venue in Austin, buying drinks for everybody at the bar, something I'd always wanted to do.
5: (laughs) It was a moment in the sun. The sugarcane cutters were going to have their back wages paid, the lawyers were going to personally profit to the tune of millions, and the perfect pursuit of justice seemed possible in the drunken haze of that Texas beer hall.
3: Of course, it was wonderful, but it wasn't really surprising. Because, number one, how could we possibly lose? But then that was appealed, and that's when everything went south very quickly.
5: Of course the sugarcane companies appealed. This was a big loss after all. So the lawyers are back in a courtroom, a few beads of sweat starting to form on their brows.
3: The appeals are always to a three-judge court.
5: First up, the sugarcane companies make their arguments that the contract was ambiguous. It's not clear what the contract means, so they need a trial.
3: The law professor representing the sugar companies went first, and he got a very... uh, a very approving response from the judges.
5: Then Dave makes his rebuttal.
3: Dave got up, and the hostility from particularly Martha Warner was really, talk about shocking.
5: This was a different court, with different judges. They weren't as receptive to the lawyer's theory as the previous judge. And as you will come to hear, some people agreed with the theory, some didn't.
3: Eventually, I got up and I told Dave to sit down. Let me try. I argued desperately and strenuously enough to at least give the judges pause. I don't think I convinced any of them, but at least they kind of backed off a little bit.
5: For Edward and Dave, it was a disaster. From their perspective, it seemed like the judges didn't accept their $5.30 per ton argument at all.
3: At the end of that hearing, I was blown away. I could not believe how hostile the court was to what really, in the end, was nothing more complicated than two and two equals four.
5: So then the judge's decision came down. What the court said
3: in their appellate decision was that the contract was ambiguous, that it might offer a ton an hour, but it might not. And therefore, a jury has to decide what the contract means.
5: Edward and Dave, I mean, they're stunned. To them, the contract was not ambiguous, and their argument was airtight. We did ask Martha Warner about her decision. Why did the judges make this call? But she said she didn't have anything more to add beyond what she wrote back in the 90s.
0: I remember being crushed. I had just had a $51 million judgment, which would have paid me probably a couple million bucks in fees or more taken away. I've never been able to reconcile how the appellate court could do what they did. I I really just have to say, I, I can't do it. That was my loss of innocence, frankly, as an attorney.
3: Like the Titanic, you've been ripped from stem to stern, but you don't initially realize just how badly you've been hurt. So the Court of Appeals decision was definitely the iceberg.
5: I mean, one would understand if you'd thrown up your hands at that point and said, I don't want nothing more to do with this case.
0: Well, I don't think I ever thought about that. That's not me. If you commit to do something, then you do it. And it wasn't over.
5: It was far from over.
3: The case then got split into five different cases, one for each company.
5: The companies, U.S. Sugar, Sugarcane Growers Co-op, and three owned by billionaire Cuban exiles, the Fonjuls, Ocalanta, Osceola, and Atlantic.
3: All five were then sent back for trial.
5: Not only had the $50 million rug been pulled out from under them, Edward and Dave's work had quintupled. It wasn't one case. There were now five to fight. And no longer would they be presenting their dense legal argument to a judge, a legal expert. They'd be presenting it to laypeople, a jury. At that point, realizing the work that was going to be ahead of you, did you think, uh, let's let this one go?
3: Oh, no. I mean, you don't let a $50 million case that you should win You don't let it go. I have to say, that's when I began to worry.
5: More after the break. So up until this point, the defense, the Sugar King companies, had been represented by a stable of hotshot lawyers and legal professors. But that was when the case was before a judge. Now they needed someone to wow the jury. They needed a showman. I
3: went down on my knees looked up towards heaven, and I said, Lord, you tell me what to say to this jury this morning. And of course, the rest is history.
5: When talking about Willie Gary, it can be hard to distinguish fact from myth. So take what follows with a pinch or an entire handful of salt.
2: Willie Gary, um, he certainly projected and developed a life story. The life story has elements of truth, but it's not entirely true.
5: The legend goes that Willie Gary was born into a poor family, the sixth of 11 children. His early childhood was spent following the migrant farm worker route, in fact, the same path that the Jamaican migrant workers often took. Growing up, he's said to have worked 12 hour days, sandwiching his school time with picking beans, corn, and cutting sugarcane. He more or less begged his way into college, sleeping on lounges in Shaw University's dormitories until they relented and gave him a scholarship. It was once he graduated law school in 1974 that a string of high-profile cases established his reputation as a talented courtroom battler. First, he successfully defended a school bus driver accused of rape in his fledgling criminal case. From there, he went on to some truly astronomical wins— a $240 million verdict against Disney and a $500 million verdict in a contract dispute against the Lowen Funeral Company. Because he took on these massive corporations, he was known as the giant killer. Back in the day, Willie was known for wearing crocodile skin shoes, hosting supermodel Tyra Banks and the Reverend Jesse Jackson at his holiday parties, and taking to the skies in a private jet he called the wings of justice. I
0: have to fly over the very sugarcane fields where I worked as a kid. And man, it's, you know, sometimes you, you get kind of teary-eyed when you think about, you know, what you came through.
5: So it's the early 1990s, and there are going to be five trials, one for each of the sugarcane companies. The Sugarcane Growers Co-op, U.S. Sugar, Atlantic, Osceola, and Okalanta. Those last three are all owned by the same parent company, Florida Crystals. Florida Crystals is part of Fanjulcor, a multi-billion dollar corporation owned by the eponymous Cuban exiles. They've got more than enough cash to hire the likes of Willie Gary to fend off pesky lawsuits. Interestingly, Willie Gary was known for suing big corporations, and now he was working for one.
2: Hmm,
0: yeah. Willie, 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 I probably ought to be careful what I say about him. Uh, let's just say I don't hold him in high regard.
5: One point some people have made is that, of course, for the growers, it didn't hurt the optics to have a black former migrant worker, someone who literally used to do the same job as the cutters from the Caribbean, on their side. That's what Greg Shell thought anyway.
2: And that was sort of the point here, that if the sugar companies had been this bad, to their black workers, and all their workers were black, why would Willie Gary throw in with the growers? In addition to whatever skills Willie brought to the table, it was that subtle message that was being conveyed.
5: Also on the defense side was Joe Clock of the high-priced law firm Steele, Hector & Davis. He'd go on to make a name for himself nationally when he helped George Bush claim the presidency in the disputed 2000 election. Marie Brenner remembers meeting him when she was covering the case for Vanity Fair.
4: He was as slick as they could possibly be. He was as slick as a lawyer gets.
5: And then there was Elizabeth Dufresne, who actually once upon a time worked to defend farm workers. But now she was firmly entrenched on the corporate side. And the glinting aquamarine and diamond ring that sat on her finger was a testament to that. She bought it when she won a $222 million settlement for Florida Power and Light.
4: She had started in the law as a total idealist, and then she went to work on the other side.
5: So the stage is set. The sugar companies have brought out their star players. Both teams have assembled, ready to rumble. It's 1999, and we're on the 11th floor of the West Palm Beach Courthouse. This is the trial against the farm Atlantic. Atlantic. You enter along with a journalist covering the case, Marie Brenner, and look on one side. Sitting there are the lawyers representing the sugarcane companies.
4: Walking into the courtroom for the first time was a kind of exercise in Visual melodrama because on one side of the courtroom were all the sugar people. There were the fawn holes.
5: Remember, these are the guys, the super rich sugar barons who own Domino Sugar, amongst others, and they own the sugar farm on trial.
4: There were all the Fonhole wives and daughters and cousins with their beautiful designer suits in pastel colors for Florida and their stiletto heels. Their handsome lawyers with their $1,000 attache cases and their polished robes.
5: Then you turn your head and look at the other side, at Dave and Edward, the team of lawyers who are suing the Sugar King Company. It was a contrast.
4: You literally had... Six guys with backpacks. And uh, it was like looking at the granola team who had flown in from New Hampshire in
5: South Florida. Then enters Willie Gary.
4: I was outside the courthouse. The day that Willie arrived and I saw him drive up or he was driven up in a Bentley and he got out with his incredible suit and the custom made crocodile shoes and he walked in as if he didn't have a care in the world. He was a star.
5: Willie Gary sweeps into the courthouse and takes his seat at the defense table alongside a gaggle of high-priced attorneys. Then the hubbub in the gallery full of pastel linen suits and shoulder pads quiets down, and it begins. First up, Dave. He's not looking at notes. He speaks directly to the jury. So here's what Dave says according to the transcript we have.
0: As you've heard in little bits and pieces, this case is fundamentally about a breach of contract. We'll see it's a story of people who are humble, hardworking, who came here from islands in the Caribbean, primarily Jamaica, for the opportunity to improve themselves and their lives for the families back home, even though it meant leaving their homes for four or five months at a time, coming here and working under some of the most difficult and dangerous conditions that exist for labor anywhere in the world. It's not just a story about people working hard and trying to make a living the best way they know how. It's also a story about a monumental bait and switch. It's a story about an industry that year after year was willing to tell our government one thing in order to get permission to bring these foreign workers in and telling the workers themselves something entirely different. That really is what the case boils down to. Should the sugar company be held to the representation it made that a man would be expected to cut eight tons of cane in a normal eight hour day, or were they free to make him cut one and a quarter, 1.4, 1.5 tons, just to earn the minimum wage. You should mean what you say, say what you mean. That's what this case is about. If you tell somebody that you're going to do something, that you ought to mean it and you ought to live up to what you say.
5: And then it's time for the headliner. Willie Gary begins his opening.
4: I mean, he had charisma. He began telling the jury how he used to pick corn in the fields. Now he lived in a huge mansion in Stewart, Florida. He was a big deal personal injury lawyer. He was an absolute visual
5: treat. We've got transcripts of the trial, and Willie opened with a classic Willie opening. We know that not because we have audio recordings of the Atlantic trial— but we do have this tape of a speech he gave during an episode of 60 Minutes.
3: I said, members of the jury, you know, I find it kind of strange.
0: Of all this time that I've been waiting just to talk to y'all, oh, I've just been waiting, members of the jury, to speak my piece.
5: It's borderline evangelical. He went on. What we are going to prove to you is that this is a frivolous lawsuit. We are going to prove that to you, members of the jury, flat out. It's not our job to do it, but I'm convinced. I have always said the truth. The truth will set you free. Then he talks about the family who owns the Atlantic Farm. For over 37 years, members of the jury, the Fanhole family has been working in the sugarcane fields. When they started out, they didn't have a whole lot, but they had a dream, and they worked hard.
3: He was a showman. He had the jury hanging on every word he said.
5: Mr. Gary continues. Members of the jury... Why are we here? The evidence is going to show that no one was ever told they would be paid by the ton. Never, never, never. Workers came. They worked, supported their families. It was all going great all those years. We told you the evidence is going to prove in this case that this is a case where someone is looking for something for nothing. That's what the evidence is going to be.
4: He understood it didn't really matter what you said, it was how you said it. Once Willie walked into the court, You could sit there and you could just think, these guys don't have a chance.
5: More after the break. Now the trial is really underway. Edward and Dave start out again with their $5.30 spiel. They say that's the amount the cutters were owed per ton. But there's evidence that the cane cutters were only paid around $3 a ton. It's like asking someone to run a 15-mile marathon for minimum wage when really they wanted them to run a 25-mile marathon. To Edward and Dave, this seems so obvious. It's a breach of contract. Though, I don't know. Sometimes it doesn't feel that obvious.
3: We walked you through it. You're expected to cut a ton an hour. If you cut a ton an hour, you're a satisfactory worker. So- okay,
5: I— uh, sorry, let me take one step back to make sure I, I understand. The clearance order said we guarantee you $530 an hour, right?
3: Right. Because it had to, because that was the minimum wage rate. You couldn't get visas without saying that.
5: But it was legal for the employer to say, but we'll only keep you employed if you're you're working at a certain rate. Exactly. Of of cutting. Exactly. But that to me seems like you're not actually guaranteed 530 an hour.
3: I wish you had been on the jury. <laughs> the lawsuit is very simple. If you offer a worker a written contract that says you will be paid at least 530 a ton, which is effectively what the contract said, then they have to pay that. And there is no defense. That, oh, I didn't know I offered that, or I didn't know I was making them work harder. It's just, you offered that, you got
5: to pay that. The way they made their argument? Well, to Marie, it wasn't the most gripping display. Essentially,
4: what I can tell you is that sitting in the courtroom was to be watching charts, charts and more charts, math and more math.
0: What we can do is multiply these four numbers that appear on the chart by $5.30. That's this, this column here, and it shows for each of the
4: four. They had gotten these whiteboards made at Kinko's. And they were divided up into graphs and squares.
0: The company is entitled to a credit for the build-up pay because the men weren't earning $5.30 cutting on the task.
4: They were doing multiplication of what you got paid by the row and what you got paid by the ton. And I can remember sitting there thinking, hmm, I'm having a really hard time following this. And if I'm going to have a hard time following this, what's going to happen on that jury?
5: Yeah, let's be real here. This might have been a brilliant theory formulated in the minds of brilliant lawyers. But was it interesting? Hard no. The jury, I
4: felt, was lost.
5: So on the defense side, the sugarcane company side, well, the argument and what they asked witnesses was completely different. Willie Gary steps up. What was Willie Gary's argument? In that case.
0: Willie Gary's argument is a frivolous case. This is all about the lawyers trying to make money. That literally was his argument.
5: At one point, Willie Gary said, this is a frivolous lawsuit, members of the jury. This is a lawsuit about somebody trying to get something for nothing, and there's no place for that in this society.
3: Witnesses talked about all kinds of things that really had nothing to do with the case. And Willie Gary... Um, As I say, he was a showman. He was very good at drawing the jury's attention to himself and away from the witnesses, who generally weren't saying anything worth listening to
5: anyway. But he did have another effective tactic. He simply
4: kept asking everyone who came on the stands, were you ever told that you were going to be paid by the hour? And so, of course, none of them could say yes because they really weren't told that.
5: He brings witness after witness, the supervisors, the cutters. Did anyone expect that they'd be paid $5.30 a ton? Everyone says
3: no. This defense that, well, we never actually read the contract The workers never saw the contract. The employers claim they never saw the contract.
5: Greg and Marie said this really hit the jury, this argument that no one saw or agreed to this contract that apparently entitled the workers to $5.30 a ton. It was merely something an independent agent wrote to secure farm worker visas with the Department of Labor.
2: Juries are full of lay people who have a common sense understanding of what a contract is. And the common sense of understanding the contract is parties agree on something, and there has to be an agreement between the parties, and that's what you enforce in a contract. The problem with this case was that the theory the plaintiffs were pushing, that the companies were required to pay a certain amount per ton of cane harvested, nobody understood that to be the deal. The company certainly didn't intend for that to be the deal. The United States government didn't understand that to be the deal, and none of the workers understood that to be the deal. So it didn't sound like it was a contract at all. How could it be a contract if nobody knew what it was about or agreed to it? That doesn't make common sense.
4: The argument they were making seemed like a contradiction to any jury. The document that no worker saw is nonetheless legally binding. So this was something that was a very, very arcane point, that it was very hard for them to get this point across, that the workers hadn't really signed off on this. You know, there was, it was just a very frustrating, grinding
5: trial. And this was a long trial, dragging on for weeks. And a long case. By now, Edward and Dave had been working on it for 10 years, a decade. In that time, they'd come up with the theory, launched the class action, had the summary judgment, fought appeal after appeal... And now they're trying to convince a jury. Sitting there at the plaintiff bench as the Atlantic trial ground on, Dave and Edward are thinking about everything they'd sunk into this case. How were you guys funding the continued case? How were you paying for it?
3: Uh, Out of our own pockets. And then friends. I had friends who contributed money, you know, just out of a sense of justice. Um, But mostly Dave and I funded it. The money I got when my grandmother died, I, you know, contributed to the case. I'm sure it was over 100000 but how much over the 15 years, I have no earthly idea. Edward moved into his
4: garage, you know, surrounded by all these boxes. There were 90 crates of legal documents.
5: He even had sugarcane growing in his backyard so he could study it. So much of their lives orbited around these lawsuits— Of course, Edward was by this time married to Sarah, who he'd met through the case. Then there were all the trips to Jamaica to gather depositions and such.
4: We're trying to find a
2: man named Beckford. The blue house? Oh, the white one. The white one. Okay. Thank you.
5: This was the other thing driving them on, the men they'd met. Most of the former cutters they'd tracked down in Jamaica had no idea about the case.
3: He's trying to get testimony to help the company and defeat the workers that's here. So it's very important. Don't talk to him. I'm your lawyer, believe it or not. Mm-hmm.
5: Most of these guys in Jamaica had stories of being underpaid, that the hours they actually worked wouldn't match up with what was on their tickets at the end of the day.
3: Did you ever look at your cane ticket and have, you'd worked the full eight hours, but they put fewer hours on your cane ticket?
5: More after the break. So back in the courtroom, puncturing the fog of the experts and the math, were the Cutters, their personal stories. These were the men who Dave and Edward had brought over from Jamaica to testify. And this was what it was all about, the heart of it all.
0: Willie Gary cross-examined a fellow in the Atlantic trial named Clinton James, who was a really good guy. We brought him up for the trial. He lives in Jamaica. He's on the witness stand, and Willie's cross-examining him. And Willie says something like this. He goes, so, you know, if the pay was so bad, why did you keep coming back year after year after year? And Clinton responds, he says, well, he says, a quarter of a slice of bread is better than no bread at all which was very much the attitude. Uh, These guys, they knew they were getting cheated, but they didn't know how.
5: In his testimony on the stand, Clinton talks about where he lived in the barracks. And meanwhile, a tear slips out when he remembers it all, eating rice every day. But then Willie brings it back to what this trial is all about. Did Clinton James ever understand that there was an agreement between the parties to pay by the ton? What did Clinton James say? He said no. He'd never heard of it. The workers, when questioned,
2: they didn't understand the theory. What they understood was they said, I don't think I got paid right. I know I worked for more than I got paid. But that wasn't what the theory was about. And so the worker testimony also was at odds with what the theory they were asking the jury to adopt
5: was. The jury retires. Dave and Edward feel like they'd done all they could. They don't know if the jury is going to agree with them, their $5.30 a ton theory. This wasn't about the workers working for more than they got paid, though we'll return to that later. And keep in mind how much is on the line millions of dollars for both the cutters and lawyers, plus all the work, money, and energy they'd sunk into this. Dave and Edward are praying it wasn't for nothing.
0: I was physically exhausted. I had been working. Seven days a week, 12 or 13 hours a day for that whole period of time, including the weekends.
5: So they're sitting there, awaiting the jury's decision, and time is passing. The jury still hasn't come back.
0: When they didn't come right back in and and pour us out, you start to become optimistic. And the longer it goes, I figured the better it was for us.
5: So they wait and look out the window of the courtroom.
4: The courtroom looked out toward the marina. You could see in the way distance. You could see many boats. You could see the ocean.
5: And if you squinted, you could just make out a yacht, a massive yacht called Creely. Who owned that luxury vessel? Well, the answer to that tells you a lot about what went down in this case, and it stretched far beyond the 11th floor of the West Palm Beach Courthouse. The verdict wasn't in yet. There's even more to unpack before we get to that. You see, you've heard the names of the companies and the people the lawyers are squaring off against. Atlantic, Okalanta, Osceola, Florida Crystals, the companies that make CNH, Domino Sugar, and the family that owns these companies, the Von Hools. But before we get to the outcome of this case, you've got to know who the lawyers are truly up against. You've got to meet the Von Hools.
4: They were rich boys in the Havana of the 1950s. Their parents would have the Duke of Windsor and the Duchess of Windsor coming to stay with them.
5: It's an origin story of incredible wealth.
4: They were probably one of the richest families in Cuba.
5: And it's a story of revolution.
4: Suddenly it's the shooting and people are having to flee and run and run undercover and run for the airport and run for boats and and everyone is fleeing.
5: Big Sugar is produced by Imagine Audio, Weekday Fun Productions, and Novel for iHeartMedia. The series is hosted by me, Celeste Headley. Big Sugar is produced by Jeff Eisenman at Weekday Fun Productions. It's executive produced by Kara Welker, Nathan Clokey, and Marie Brenner. Story editor and executive producer is Joe Wheeler. The researcher is Nadia Medhi. Production management from Cherie Houston, Frankie Taylor, and Charlotte Wolfe. Our fact-checker is Sona Avakian. Field reporting by Amber Amortegi. Sound design and mixing by Eli Block, Naomi Clark, and Daniel Kempson. Original music composed by Troy McCubbin at Alloy Tracks. Additional music by Nicholas Alexander. Special thanks to Alec Wilkinson, author of the book Big Sugar, and Stephanie Black, director of the documentary H2 Worker. Big Sugar is based on the Vanity Fair article in The Kingdom of Big Sugar by Marie Brenner.
1: Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs in schools. They held us in dog cages
3: Apple Podcast or wherever
2: you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia.
0: He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and
2: the coldness of Michael.